Well, good afternoon, everyone. Before we get started here today, would you uh, pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for the freedom that we have to come and worship you like this, to hear your word proclaimed, to sing songs of praise and worship, to pray together. Lord, to gather together is a privilege, and we're so thankful for this opportunity, and we pray that you would open our hearts and minds as we hear from you today through the book of Jeremiah. In your name, amen. Well, uh, as you see there on the screen, we are going to be looking at Jeremiah today. This is a special standalone. I know we just started a new uh, series here. But uh, we're going to take a little break uh, for Father's Day. And we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Jeremiah, specifically chapter 38 and a little bit in 39. And in honor of Father's Day, this afternoon we're going to take a brief look at the lives of three men whose lives intersect at a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. Three men whose lives become tied together in the very final moments before the collapse and the fall of Jerusalem. Three men who come from completely different backgrounds, who have completely different roles and different callings on their lives. And more specifically, three men who reveal to us today three very different lessons as we celebrate Father's Day. Now the first man I'm certain you've heard of before, this is the great prophet Jeremiah. We have a whole book named for him, so I'm hoping you recognize him. The second man is less well known. His name is sort of lost in the jumble of kings that come after King Solomon uh, passes away and we enter into the divided kingdom. And his name is King Zedekiah, one of the four sons of Josiah. And his main claim to fame is simply being the last king of Judah. And the third man that I want to introduce to you today, I can almost guarantee you've never heard of before. And his name is Ebed-Melech. He's one of the minor characters in the Bible who rarely gets any airplay, but a man who nevertheless intervenes in a dramatic way to rescue Jeremiah from certain death, as you just heard read. Three men tied together by one event that brings them all together right here in Jeremiah 38. And as we look at this event from the perspective, from the perspective of these three different men, I want to present to you today with three clear challenges. First, I want you to embrace the passionate tenacity of Jeremiah. Second, to reject the passivity that we see in King Zedekiah. And third, to act with the faithfulness of Ebed-Melech. I don't have uh, my little remote control, but we'll, we'll figure it out here as we go along. So we can cut to the next slide here. The first man we're going to look at today is Jeremiah. Bold, prophetic, tenacious, but also sorrowful, frustrated, despondent. A man battered almost to pieces by his ministry, but a man who nevertheless persevered anyway. It's like when our our kids were 
much, much younger and, and would go to the wave pool up at the Dells. And I'd be out there in the water standing right there on my tiptoes in the deepest part where they wanted to go, barely able to touch the bottom, trying to hold these two or three kids up above the water while these huge waves are like pounding at me from all different angles. And up in the Dells back then, they don't do this anymore, but they used to allow you to have big clear inflatable tubes in the wave pool. So you'd have these waves and then people would be sitting in these these huge tubes laughing and giggling and having a great time and kicking me in the head and knocking me in the back and the waves are pounding. And when I think of Jeremiah, that's the image that comes to mind. A, a man getting smashed around in the wave pool of life, barely able to get his feet underneath him. A man on the very verge of drowning underneath the weight of grief and sorrow. A man preaching about the impending doom of a nation while all those around him are laughing and mocking and ignoring his cries of warning. A man working overtime to plead for the, this, the freedom and, and the life of his people, struggling to breathe, get a, a breath of air, fearful of death. But I also think of a man filled with passion and perseverance. You know, standing there in the wave pool with my kids, I would do anything, whatever's necessary, to keep their little heads above the water, right before they could really swim. And Jeremiah is a man who's dedicated to doing whatever he can do to save the people around him. As depressing and difficult and hopeless as it may seem at times, Jeremiah keeps preaching, he keeps warning, he keeps proclaiming God's words to God's people. From the time he started his prophetic ministry as a teenager, all the way through until the time he was exiled in Egypt at about 55 years old. For me, in that wave cool, I, I could barely handle two minutes, right? But Jeremiah persevered in ministry for 40 years. 40 years. 40 years of near constant rejection and ridicule. 40 years of mockery and embarrassment. Kids, I want you to, to think about a time when someone made fun of you or, or perhaps ignored you or, or didn't invite you to a party or, or didn't choose you for a team. Do you remember how that felt? How, how, how bad you felt? Now imagine experiencing that almost daily for 40 years. And not because you've done anything wrong, but simply because you're trying to tell people what God's told you to tell them. But here's the thing, Jeremiah never gives up. He was tired, he was frustrated, he cried out to God, he was almost always alone, but he kept going. He knew the right way to go and he would not let anyone or anything push him off course. Now the specific passage we're looking at today comes almost at the very, very end of Jeremiah's preaching ministry. At this point, like I said, Jeremiah is probably in his 50s. And he's still preaching the same message. And the reaction continues to be the same. Look at verse 4 in your text. 
Then the official said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers. And then he, he said, continues, For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. The irony here, of course, is, is this is the very opposite of what Jeremiah is trying to do. His whole ministry has been devoted to the people's welfare, to their well-being, to their continued blessing. But they can't see that. So it continues here in verse 6. So they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which is in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Now cistern is simply a a large container for water, usually dug into the ground, uh, kind of like a giant rain barrel for for collecting water. So this is the mouth of a stone cistern. As you can see, it's barely big enough for, for a person to fit through, and inside, though, it would widen out considerably for holding water. But to be thrown into a cistern was a death sentence, for sure. I mean, there's no way out of this. You can't sort of scramble up out of this, even if there was no water left in it. And I want you to know, this is not a metaphor here, okay? This is not like, though Jeremiah is sinking in the mud of depression. No, he's, he's literally stuck in actual mud, in a dank, dark, depressing stone cistern. There's no light, there's no hope, there's no way out. In his head, I'm imagining he must have thought this was the very end. What goes through your mind in those moments? When the very real physical pains and the diseases and the pressures of the world are crowding in, threatening to drown out all hope and all life. None of us are exempt from suffering, struggle, and pain. And there will be moments of such total darkness that God will seem to have turned His face away. Even when you're walking with the Lord, even when you're doing His will, even when you're reading your Bible and praying and giving and serving and everything else and doing everything right, Jeremiah's pain and his suffering in this moment is a reminder that difficulty and struggle may be just as much a part of God's plan for us as the path of peace and joy and blessing. And yet we are called to persevere and to press on nonetheless. And we'll talk about his rescue in a moment, but after he is miraculously released, King Zedekiah calls for Jeremiah and he asks for his counsel. Again. And now I don't know about you, but in that moment I'd be thinking, there's no way. <laughs> Forget it. Like, I'm out of here. And even Jeremiah, not surprisingly, he is a little hesitant. If you look at, at verse 15, Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you won't listen to me. In other words, he's like, look, you just threw me in a cistern. Like, that was a death sentence. You think I'm going to come and talk to you again? And you're not even going to listen if, you, if I do. 
But after multiple promises from the king, Jeremiah said, it's like, okay, I will tell you what the Lord says. And he repeats the same message, more or less, that he's been preaching for years. If you look at verses 17 through 22, Jeremiah says, look, if you want to save the city, if you want to save yourself, surrender to the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. But if you ignore God's word to you now, destruction is inevitable. Parents, you've experienced the frustration of repeatedly telling your kids the same things over and over and over and over again, and they keep not listening or keep not doing it. Right? You've experienced that, right? Some, somebody, <laughs> I think. I know we have. Um, that's Jeremiah's pain. Except this isn't some minor issue like, oh, don't forget to floss, or how many times have I told you to clean your room? This is a truly a life and death situation. Not just for one person, but for an entire nation. Looked at from an even broader perspective, it's not just physical life and death that he's talking about here, but but spiritual life and death. The people are facing a choice between the path of life, blessing in the presence of God, and the path of death, rebellion, rejection of their Lord. And if they make the wrong choice, they will face the judgment of God himself. And so Jeremiah perseveres. He's desperate for them to see the light, to change their ways, even after the imprisonments, even after the death threats, even after the beatings and the ridicule and the mocking. But of course they refuse to listen. And so the end comes just as Jeremiah has been predicting. Jerusalem's destroyed, King Zedekiah is taken into captivity, the people of God are sent into exile. And with this result, Jeremiah's ministry seems to have been pointless. I mean, all that tenacity and perseverance wasted on people who won't listen. Why persevere if nobody will listen, if change doesn't come? If the lost don't repent, what if I never see any fruit for all this hard work and perseverance? But in the end, this book of Jeremiah, it's it's not really about Jeremiah at all. It's about God. It's about His plans. It's about His purposes. And Jeremiah is commended for his faithfulness to God, not his success in convincing people to change their ways. And the same applies to us as well. Will you persevere faithfully even in the face of opposition? Even if you never see the fruit that you are hoping for. But there's still more. Because many years later, God used Jeremiah's words. Perhaps even after he was dead. But he used them to bring comfort to the people who were living in exile. God used Jeremiah's words to bring meaning and clarity to people as they, as they look back and try to make sense of what on earth just happened to us. Most importantly, God used Jeremiah's words to bring comfort and hope 
to hold out for them a promise that this was not the end. That although their city had been destroyed, the temple had been destroyed, they had been sent out of there, the promised land, all hope was not lost. God used Jeremiah's words to bring comfort and hope to remind them of the promise of a new covenant which would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And although we may not be prophets like Jeremiah, we have these same words of comfort available to us. These same words of hope to offer to people who are trapped in spiritual darkness, who are heading in the wrong direction, who keep making the wrong choices, who are on that path to death. And we have words that, of life to offer them, words that may be rejected, that may be ignored, that may lead to us being shunned and ridiculed and mocked, but words nonetheless that we are compelled to keep preaching and sharing with people nonetheless. That's our first point. To persevere with that same passionate tenacity that we see in the life of Jeremiah. But now we turn to look at King Zedekiah. Now as a quick history lesson here, if you put up the next slide, you're probably all familiar with King Josiah, right? He's a good king. His religious reforms brought about all these changes. But of course, it was cut short when he went out to fight Pharaoh Necho, and he's killed in battle. And in his place, the people appoint his son, Jehoahaz. Next slide. Now, Jehoahaz, Josiah's son, he's captured almost immediately by Pharaoh Necho. He doesn't last very long. He's taken into captivity. And so, in his place... The Pharaoh appoints Jehoahaz's brother, Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim is evil. Almost as evil as his grandfather, Manasseh. He imposed heavy taxes on his people. He reinstitutes all kinds of idolatrous practices. Jehoiakim is the evil king who tears up, if you're familiar with the the book of Jeremiah, he's the one who takes the scroll of Jeremiah and slowly tears it into pieces and tosses it into the fire. Perhaps one of the more outrageously rebellious acts of rebellion against God in the Bible. Now around this time, the Egyptians were beaten, beaten by the Babylonians. There's this tug of war in the Middle East at this time. The Egyptians and the Babylonians, and they're fighting for power. And the Egyptians are beating, beaten back by the Babylonians. And Jerusalem comes under control of, of Babylon. And at this point, Jehoiakim is forced to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. But he gets tired of doing this. And so after three years, he rebels, and somewhere in there is killed. So now the new king, Jehoiachin, or Jehoiakin, with an N, Jehoiakim's son, he's appointed to the throne, but he only reigns three months. So this is just disastrous for the people before being taken off to Babylon. And at this point, the throne goes to his uncle Zedekiah, Josiah's third son. Now, Zedekiah was a weak and somewhat pathetic man. He seems to have continued the idolatrous practices of his brothers, but lacked 
their zeal and conviction. He was easily pushed and pulled this way and that by the the pressures and the people around him. And at this moment in history, Judah was caught between, like I said, these two major world powers between Egypt on the one hand and Babylon on the other. And Zedekiah, he liked to play the field. I don't know, maybe we'll go with them, maybe we'll go with them. And eventually he rebelled against Babylon by trying to form an alliance with Egypt Despite everything Jeremiah was warning him, the Babylonians sweep into Judah, break through the walls, and Zedekiah is taken into captivity. Now Zedekiah appealed to Jeremiah for help and guidance on several different occasions. He seems to have believed that Jeremiah had a special connection with God. And so Zedekiah says in chapter 37, uh, verse 3, Please! Pray for us to the Lord, to Yahweh, our God. Or again, in in verse 17, he he sends for Jeremiah, and the king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from Yahweh? It's like he senses that Jeremiah has this connection and he wants to hear. But Zedekiah lacks the resolve to really do anything about what Jeremiah tells him. He repeatedly meets with Jeremiah in secret. He's looking for guidance from God. But then, when the officials come to him in chapter 38, and they want to put Jeremiah to death, he he caves immediately. It's pathetic. I mean, look look at uh, 38 verse 5. King Zedekiah's head. Behold, he's in your hands. I mean, the king can do nothing against you. It's like, what? You're the king? What do you mean you can't do anything against them? Clearly, he's more concerned about maintaining his own position amongst the people or or keeping everyone happy. And yet, a few verses later, when Ebed-Melech comes and asks for permission to rescue Jeremiah, he flips again. And he says, oh, okay, we'll take 30 men and go pull him out of the cistern. And then, after that, a few verses later, he calls for Jeremiah again to ask for help. In verse 16, he says, Look, as the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. And he goes on to ask for help and direction. So there seem to be strong indications that Zedekiah, although he was a weak king, he he, he knew that right thing to do. He knew that Jeremiah had this connection with with God. He knew at some level that Jeremiah's words were true. But he lacked the resolve to do anything about it. Now on the one hand, it's easy to dismiss him as evil or to mock him for his weakness and passivity. But I think our own lack of resolve should stand as a warning against us. I mean, consider the spiritual resolutions that we feel compelled and convicted about on Sunday, but lack the resolve to put into action on Monday. Consider all the times you've thought, yeah, you know what, I really need to get on that. But then you never do it. And I'm not talking about your home to-do list. 
I'm talking about your spiritual to-do list, your personal devotional life, your prayer life, your spiritual vitality of your marriage, the discipleship of your children, your service in the church, your financial giving goals, your ministry to others, your involvement in local outreach or global missions, your passion for seeing the gospel go out into the world. Think about all the the applications that you've dutifully written down week after week after week but lack the resolve or the spiritual passion or the commitment to put into action. The notes that catch your eye when when you're reading through your Bible and you're like, oh, yes, I, I meant to do that. I really need to do that. So I think if we're honest here, there's a little bit of Zedekiah's passivity in all of us. And how many men drift through life content with avoiding the excesses of flagrant sin, but never really committing the effort to become the bold leaders that God is calling them to be. Leaders of themselves, of their families, in the church. Men who will take a stand. Men who have conviction and resolve. Who cast vision and set a course. But I don't want you to lose hope. It's easy to to look at that long list of should-haves and could-haves and to give up. But in Christ is actually tremendous hope for you and me because it's in our very weakness that Christ is glorified. In our weakness and failure, we have nowhere else to turn for strength and resolve but to God. And the Gospel tells us that we can draw near to our Heavenly Father at the source of all our strength with full confidence because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice pays in full for all your sins, all your failures, all the lost time, all the missed opportunities. But more than that, He's also given you the Holy Spirit to empower you to live differently from this point on. The Holy Spirit is the engine that will drive change in your life. The Spirit is the gift that God has given you to help you start over. The cross behind me should should serve as a reminder that everything I've said is, is real, it's true. God's wrath has been set to one side. You've been set free. And there's tangible hope for change. Because the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave lives in you and will strengthen you to do what otherwise might seem impossible. Having said all of that, I know that that mental to-do list of spiritual priorities is long and perhaps overwhelming. So I want you to encourage you to start small. You know, our dog Skye is a border collie and she loves chasing sticks, chewing on sticks, 
ripping branches off trees. I mean, she's just obsessed with them. And sometimes we'll be out on a walk and she'll see some enormous fallen branch. I'm talking about like a whole tree branch. And she grabs a hold of one end and she starts trying to drag it down the street with her. And so we have to stop and break off like, like let, we, let us help you here. You cannot handle that. And then we had to break off a small piece for her. And the same principle applies for us here. Don't be trying to drag the whole tree down the street with you. Instead, I want you to write down one first little step that you can make today to dig out from the pit of spiritual passivity. Maybe it's someone you need to apologize to. Maybe it's someone you need to to pray with. Maybe it's spending five minutes reading one psalm. Maybe it's a commitment to praying together tonight with your kids or with your wife or with your husband. Whatever it is, start small, but start today. So our second point, reject the passivity of, of Zedekiah. But the third and final man we're looking at today is Ebed-Melech. If you look with me at the text starting in verse 7, uh, 38-7, we read, Ebed-Melech, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. The king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern. And he will die there of hunger. And one of the fun parts of camping for us is going out at night and looking at all the stars. And although I can see some from our backyard, there's something that when you get away from the city, away from all the lights... It's the darkness of the countryside. They seem to shine more brightly. The blacker the night, the more brightly the stars seem to shine. And in a similar way, the simple actions of Ebed-Melech shine all the more brightly when set against the otherwise bleak and black background of the rest of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a really long book. It's actually the longest book in the Bible based on word count. Longer than Genesis, longer than Psalms, longer than Isaiah. But good luck finding in Jeremiah any examples of faithful followers of God. God's people have slipped so far into idolatry that Jeremiah is essentially left all alone. And so although you might be tempted to think, Well, Ebed-Melech's actions, they're not really that big a deal. They're a huge deal. When you've been reading chapter after chapter after chapter of of continuing rejection and rebellion uh, of God and His law, it's astonishing. This faithful foreigner, he sticks out like a sore thumb. It's like on Sesame Street. One of these is not like the other. And I'm telling you, it's Ebed-Melech. And even more so surprising because he's not even an Israelite. He's a foreigner. He's an outsider. He's not part of the chosen people of God. 
More than that, it's possible he was even a eunuch, meaning unable to have any kids. A sign of great shame and humiliation. And according to, to Deuteronomy 23, a condition that would have prevented him from being a part of the assembly of, of the Lord. And yet, in the moment of Jeremiah's greatest need, when all hope seemed lost, when death seemed imminent, no Israelite stepped forward on his behalf. It was this foreigner, Ebed-Melech. But there's more, because look at what Ebed uh, does next. Having secured the king's permission to rescue Jeremiah, we then get all this detail on how he did it. He goes to, to the wardrobe, and he, he takes out all these old rags, and, and then he sends them down into the cistern, and he tells Jeremiah, okay, put them under your armpit, so when we put the ropes under you to hoist you up, the ropes don't cut into your arms. And they bring him up out of the cistern. The detail here, it's, it's amazing. Ebed-Melech, he's meticulous in his planning. He knows the only way to get uh, um, Jeremiah up out is by rope, but he doesn't want to hurt him in doing so. And so he provides this whole system for caring for the prophet in this rescue. It's a touching moment of care and compassion in an otherwise bleak book of rejection and rebellion. A solitary ray of light cutting through the doom and gloom of an entire book promising judgment. And it's a concrete example of God's promise going all the way back to Jeremiah chapter 1 that he would protect Jeremiah and keep harm from coming to him. And then look at at the very end of chapter 39 which... uh, Nathan read to us at the beginning, Abed-Melech, the foreigner, he's then commended by God for his faithfulness, even as the people of God themselves are sent into exile for their lack of faith. It's incredible. So, you know, it's hard for me looking ahead to the book of Acts when Philip encounters an Ethiopian eunuch coming from Jerusalem. I don't think it's an accident that he's one of the very first people to receive the gospel and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I see in Ebed Malik an example of someone doing whatever he can, of someone playing his part, even if it seems so small, someone willing to step out in faith and step up to do something concrete and tangible. Are you willing to be that kind of person? In Ebed Melech, I see a man of compassion and care. Any fool can mouth off an opinion, but Ebed Melech actually does something. He sees a need, he expresses concern, he devises a plan, he gets people to help him, he completes the task. He's like, look, I'm not trying to change the whole world. But this is a man I can help. This is something I can do. And if Jeremiah is left in the cistern, he's going to die and I'm going to rescue him. Ebed-Melech should be a model for all of us. Young and old alike. 
And so I want you to think today, what's one small thing you can do to help someone this week? One specific need that you can meet. Where is God calling you to show compassion and care and concern? Perhaps towards your siblings or to your parents or grandparents or, or to your husband or your wife or a friend or a neighbor. But Ebed Malik isn't just a model of what we should do for others. Because he's also a picture of what God does for us. The Bible is clear that without Jesus, we are all trapped in spiritual darkness, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2.12 Just like Jeremiah, we are unable to help ourselves up out of that pit. But God in His great compassion and care for us, reaches down into the muck and pulls us out. He sets our feet on the rock and gives us a firm place to stand. More than that, He takes away our dirty rags and clothes us in righteousness. He calls us His beloved children. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, We can now live in freedom, basking in the glorious presence of our loving God and Heavenly Father and perfect King. And so, wrapping all this up, I want to challenge you this week to do three things. First, to embrace that same kind of passionate tenacity and perseverance that we saw in Jeremiah. Second, to reject the passivity of Zedekiah. And third, to act with the faithfulness of Ebed-Melech. And may God work through you to bring blessing to your families, to our church, and to our nation as a result. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so just overwhelmed at your love for us, at your perseverance, at your care and concern and compassion to reach out and to rescue us, to sustain us. And Lord, we pray this week for your strength, your power to help us resist passivity, to put into action all the things that we know you've been calling us to do, that we might live for you and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.